Well, by a show of hands, and I mean that, not one of these, just if you'll raise your hand, if you've ever heard the term, Old Scratch. Woo, we do have, we do have a, okay. Yeah, those are some reluctant, see, y'all finally came to the party. Okay. So we do have, it's funny, all the folks that know that term are sitting in the back of the room. But, it's a term that probably fell out of favor about a hundred or so years ago. Was used much more commonly in the 17 and 1800s. And there are some references in classic literature. In uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol there is a reference to Old Scratch. In uh, Mark Twain's uh, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Aunt Polly makes a comment about Tom and says, Tom is just so full of Old Scratch. And she's referring to his rebellious nature and his, uh, his uh, habit of getting into a good bit of mischief. But when we mention Old Scratch... We're talking about the devil. And a book that I've been reading uh, in, the, in the introduction, uh, the gentleman, and he's involved in a prison ministry in Texas. I've mentioned Richard Beck before. He's a psychology professor at Abilene Christian. But Beck talks about uh, the, the gentleman that goes with him every Monday night to this maximum security prison in West Texas uh, is... The other gentleman that was with him was leading the opening prayer. And he said, And Lord, protect us from old scratch. And so when he finished the prayer, Beck looks at him and says, What in the world did you just say? He says, What? And he says, Old scratch? Is that what you said? He said, Who in the world is old scratch? And yeah, it's the devil. And, of course, there's the cartoon version of the devil, even the one that looks like Bart Simpson. And, uh, and yeah, that's the idea we get, right? Or at least that's what the way he's been portrayed uh, over umpteen decades now is the guy with the pointed tail and the goatee and the, and the pitchfork. And so uh, it's interesting, interesting and really uh, kind of a shame uh, Barna Group. Now they are a research organization that focuses on uh, looking into surveying what Christians believe at any given time. And uh, the numbers are from about 10 or so years ago, maybe 12 years ago, or the most recent numbers I saw, where they surveyed Christians and was, were asking them about hell and about the devil and what their current beliefs were. And 32% of Christians, only 32% of Christians, should I say, actually believed that the devil was real. Now think about that for a minute. Not surveying the general populace, but surveying people who identified specifically as Christians. But only 32% of them believed that the devil was real. Because a good number of them, the majority of them, believe that when the Bible refers to Satan or the devil, 
It's really meaning the embodiment of that which is not good. Kind of this idea of evil. And so it, it's helpful to our human minds if you give it a name and a face maybe. And so that that's why the biblical writers then identify evil as the devil. Now, I find a real problem with that. Is the devil evil? No question. But is the name the devil just synonymous with a lack of goodness or evil? Oh, I think there's way more to it than that. And when we look in Luke chapter 4, I think we see evidence. Because this is not a parable. We see evidence that Jesus is having a dialogue with someone who is very real. Luke 4, beginning with verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second because on the surface, that might not seem like a big deal. First of all, why is that such a temptation? Now, I don't know about y'all, but if I go just four or five, six hours without eating, bread sounds good to me. Sounds real good to me. Especially if it's warm and has some butter with it, right? Yeah. Also on the surface, what's the harm? Who's, who's going to know, right? There's stone there, he turns it to bread. What's the big deal? Because Jesus is who in the flesh, church? It's God in the flesh. He turns that stone to bread. It shows that he can be influenced by evil. So yeah, it's a big deal. And so, Jesus then responds. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's always fascinated me. That even the devil there is quoting scripture. He's quoting from Psalm 91. Jesus answered, 
it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So, how does Jesus respond then to all of this tempting? And this word could also be translated testing. One and the same, really. But how does he respond? Well, he quotes scripture, doesn't he? The devil does too, as I just pointed out. But yeah, Jesus, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, and then Deuteronomy 6 again. Whenever he says it is written, he's quoting from the Jewish law. And so the first thing we should recognize, church family, is that if we want to be like Jesus, we know the Word of God. We spend time there. That having the Word of God written on our hearts is a very good defense of what the devil can throw at us. But church, it's important that we know our enemy. Anybody who coaches will tell you that the most effective way to prepare a team is to know who it is they're going to play. To watch that film, to study that film. I read articles about athletes as a sports fan. And uh, many of them will tell you, or people talking about that athlete will tell you, about how much time they as an individual, not just in their team meetings or, or, or uh, their position meetings, but how much time they as an individual will spend in the film room. The best hitters in baseball study pitchers. They watch lots of film to look at their, at their sequences and their patterns to see if they have any kind of tells about how they might stand in a certain way or drop their shoulder a certain way when they begin their motion depending on what pitch they're about to throw. And then every sport we could talk about, there's an advantage to knowing your opponent. And so church, it helps us to realize what old scratch is capable of and what old scratch's limitations are. Because church, the devil has no power over us. That's important for us to realize. The devil has no power over us. But... If you look at the weapons in his arsenal, what he does have is the ability to know our nature. To know the desires of our hearts. There are some things I could be tempted with that wouldn't be a temptation at all. And I know from talking to other brothers and sisters in Christ... And they acknowledge, boy, there are some things you just throw at me and that's, boy, that's not a problem. I've talked to other ministers that say, boy, this isn't a problem, this isn't a problem. But then there's something there, isn't there, church? For every one of us, there's something that the devil can use against us. 
And so that is the devil's primary weapon, is knowing our nature. Knowing the desires of our heart. We're going to get to that a little further in a moment. And then using what is attractive to us, what is tempting to us, using that. See, here the devil is talking to Jesus. And it's it's kind of... It, it kind of reminds me of the garden with Adam and Eve and the serpent. And of course the dialogue that's recorded in Genesis is with Eve, between the serpent and Eve initially. But we know from a careful reading of that account in Genesis 3 that Adam is right there. He has ears to hear. And so he is right there. And so what does the devil say? to them. Surely you're not going to die if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Surely not. God just doesn't want you to eat of that fruit because then you'll know things. You'll have knowledge and you'll be like Him. Now obviously that was attractive to them. Or the serpent doesn't throw that out there, right? But knowing that, hey, we'd like to be like God. For some, that may not have been anywhere in their scheme of thinking, anywhere in their thought process whatsoever. But yet, for them, that was the Achilles heel, you might say. And so, and so, yeah, they fall into that temptation. And there we are, freedom of choice and the fall of mankind. And so, Satan, in talking to Jesus, it's as if he's saying, come on, it's just bread, surely you should feed yourself. It's all your land anyway. Just bow to me and receive it today. Surely that's not a problem. Surely God will protect His Son. Just try Him out in that last instant of throw yourself down. And i got to tell you, church, that's the one that would have been the most tempting to me. When somebody says... I don't think you can. If you really are who you say you are, then do that. You know, the idea of throwing yourself down and then just kind of getting back up and you know, shaking it off. and Okay, that which would kill a regular human being. That God in the flesh has power over that. And of course, Jesus doesn't bite on any of it. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Temptation comes from our own desires. Church family, read that top line with me. Temptation comes from our own desires. Okay, now with gusto. Once again, temptation comes from our own desires. 
which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. So, that reminder... Brother James puts it right here. Where, where's the source of temptation? It comes from our own desires. Now we talked about this a little more than two years ago. I thought it was a good time for a refresher course. I know I can use it. But temptation doesn't come from the devil. Temptation comes from right here, doesn't it, church? It comes from our own desires. You want to change the effectiveness of temptation, then you work on the desires of our heart. We desire those things that are pure and holy and good. And then we take away the devil's power completely. Jesus shows us how it's done. He shows us how to do it. Meditate on the Word of God. Change the desires of your heart. And then temptation is so much less of an issue. Temptation comes from our own desires. It's like if you have a seed in the ground... Well, what does that seed need to grow? The first thing it needs to grow is water, right? So you can give water a lot of credit for that seed being able to sprout. And then once it sprouts and breaks the ground, then it needs sunlight to help it along. But prior to sunlight being involved, you could give, you could give credit to the water. And say, well, it's the water that did it. But would the water have accomplished anything had there not been a seed in the ground? Well, of course not. So, if there's no seed of desire planted within our heart, then anything that comes at us is just futile. It has no real power. Now, we're going to be talking about this the next couple of weeks, and I think this is important, leading, especially leading up to Easter. But next week, we're going to talk more specifically about what the devil's work is, how that manifests itself, what it looks like in our society, what it looks like for us as individuals. But this work, this work, this verse, excuse me, 1 John 3, verse 8, and it's actually the, the second part of 1 John 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Church family, the devil is real. And yes, Jesus came to show us how to love and how to live and Jesus came to be an atoning sacrifice on the cross. To usher in the new covenant 
in God's relationship with His people. But church family, I appreciate what one of the closest followers of Jesus tells us here. That the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3.8, say it with me church. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Amen? Yeah. Amen. And so, we as a people know that we have a Savior who can destroy what is evil. A Savior who can overcome evil with good. And so as we live our lives, as we go about our way this coming week, let's be people who are not enticed by evil. And it's not just important this week, it's important every week thereafter. But it starts right here. It starts as we exit those doors. I remember the years we would go to Winterfest. And if anybody's ready to go again when they have it, let's go. But, I remember those years we would go to Winterfest. And man, you come out of a a weekend like that and you are just charged up. And I remember, though, sometimes on Sunday morning, a speaker would say, okay, now we're about to dismiss in just a short while. And yeah, you've had a great weekend. And we've seen so many baptisms. And there are going to be so many baptisms when you all return to your respective congregations. And he said, but don't think that you've got the devil nervous. He said, because the devil knows that you're about to walk out of here. And what are you going to be doing? Of course, they're talking to primarily a teenage audience. He said, you're going to be jockeying for seats on that church van. And, you know, you're not going to get very far out of town. And then comes the discussion, where are we going to eat lunch? Well, I want this. Oh, I hate that. Right? Put a bunch of people in confined space together. They've all got opinions. They've all got personalities. And, of course, the speaker is simply reminding everyone that you walk out of here and you get back to, oh, that term we've heard so much in the last year, back to normal. Right? You're in church. You're on holy ground. This is a safe space. But you clear those doors. If we as God's people, as God's children, don't retain what we've learned this morning, what we've been reminded of, then we have failed to an extent of getting out of bed and showing up here in the first place. So church, defeating the devil starts with taking to heart that we as God's children need to change the desires of our heart. And we need to be aware of our opponent. That the devil is real that He does exist and that He is working against us. But what does Jesus say? 
take heart. I have overcome the world. And Brother John reminds us that he came to destroy, not to disrupt, not to hinder, but to destroy the devil's work. There is power in the blood, church family. And for those of us who are washed in that precious blood, let's be reminded of our ability to overcome temptation. We're willing to change the desires of our heart. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet been washed in the blood of the Lamb, then we invite you to not put it off, to let today be the day that you put on Christ in baptism. And if you're with us this morning and there's something that you need the church family to pray about with you and for you, then we invite you to come for that reason as well. Let's stand and sing this song. Wonderful.